You're listening to audio from Mercy's Door Community Church in Mascouda, Illinois. If you'd like to get more information about Mercy's Door, we'd love for you to connect with us on Facebook or check us out at mercysdoor.org. We are several weeks into a sermon series that we have entitled The Words of Life, a theology of words. Theology literally just means the study of God, and so we are looking and studying together how the Lord has designed our words to work. And the basis for this is not just simply so that we can speak a little bit better, speak a little bit more kindly to other people, but to recognize that we, in Christ Jesus, are all made new creations, that we have gone from an old kingdom to a new kingdom, an old life to a new life, that we have gone from being orphans to beloved children. And if all things within us are new, that certainly includes the gift of words that the Lord has given to us. That our words ought not be slightly different, but the old words should be gone and new words, words of Christ, should be given to us and we should walk in them day by day. And so we began the sermon series looking at the words that we hear. Right, Children learn to speak by hearing words spoken to them and over them. And we, as we live, hear two sets of words constantly. One is the voice of our enemy. The voice, quite honestly, of the culture and the world around us. That voice tells us, that the Lord God is not enough and that we on our own need to determine what life and hope and joy and pleasure is and where it can be found. It says that we make a better God than God does. It's the voice that leads us astray again and again and again. But there is a better voice, a greater voice. The voice that spoke all of creation into existence. The voice of our Heavenly Father and His voice, His words bring life. Out of chaos, they bring order. Out of darkness, they bring light. Out of dust, they bring you and I. They bring life. And so from there, we spent the last three weeks asking, now who, as we learn to speak, who do we speak to? We speak to the worlds around us, the the people around us, and we said we speak the gospel. That's what we've been called to speak to others with our words, the good news of what Christ has done. And then the next week, we, we discuss that we don't just speak to others, but we speak to ourselves because we already do. Right? I, I mentioned a quote by, by Paul Tripp that said that you are the most important person and most influential person in your life because you speak to you more than anybody else does. And so we said when we speak to ourselves, we need to remind ourselves of the good news of the gospel that in Christ Jesus, we are beloveds of our Heavenly Father. And then finally, last week, we learned to speak to the giver of words. We learned to pray. From here on out, we're not going to be talking about who is speaking to us or who we should be speaking to, but instead how we ought to speak. And so this first sermon series, especially if you have your study guide in front of you, we are looking to learn to speak with humility. This sermon series, uh, the Lord brought it about for me several months ago at the beginning of the year. I I was reading through the Gospels, 
And I was just noticing again and again the way that Christ spoke to people. The way that He spoke to His disciples. The way He spoke to the the lame and the sick and the sinful and the world around Him. And at the same time as I was casting my eyes on the words of our Savior Jesus, I was constantly watching as other people, others that bear the name of Christ, were speaking as well. Jesus' words were filled with kindness and empathy, care, gentleness, and compassion. But our words, the words that I saw other Christ followers speaking to one another, the words I saw on social media, Lord, help us, were words filled with pride and condemnation, contempt, self-righteousness, and a refusal to listen. Now, it makes sense, if I'm being honest, why the words of the world would sound that way. After the fall of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, the first words that they speak are dripping with what we see now. The Lord God came to Adam, and it says this in Genesis 3, beginning in 12, The man said to God, The woman whom you gave to be with me, God, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, No, no, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. Words from that moment on became weapons. Words from that moment on became tools in order to build and protect our own standing, in order to gather value and worth for ourselves. Words from that moment on have been used to justify our sin, to exalt us one over another, and even to accuse the Lord of deficiency. Those are our words. Those are the words that are now natural to us apart from Christ Jesus, and yet for you and I, those are no longer our words because our words are now Christ's words. Just as we are now meant to to look like Christ Jesus, to live like Christ Jesus, to act like Christ Jesus as we are being conformed into the image of the Son. Our words, our conversation is meant to reflect His words as well. And these words, if you had to choose a place to begin, begin with humility. The word humility or humble literally means low. The the original word is, is a direction word. It means something that doesn't grow high up off the ground, but grows along the ground. The prominence of humility is found all throughout Scripture, and it is undeniable. If you watch Jesus speak and teach, He is often teaching specifically about pride and conversely, humility. 
He's demanding humility from the Pharisees who speak and teach out of arrogance and pride. He is teaching His disciples what it looks like to trade in their own self-righteousness and instead to live out lives of humility. Literally, almost every New Testament letter that Paul writes, at some point in time, there is a clear exhortation from him to believers to embrace a life of humility. This morning, we are looking at one of those passages in Romans chapter 12. And in it, I want us to see that Paul teaches us four ways that we are called to be a people of humility and therefore to live and speak with humility. I'm going to give them to you up front so you can follow along with me. Here are the four ways that we live and speak with humility. One, as those before a holy God. Two, as those uniquely called Loved and led. Three, as those a part of a body. And four, as those sent by Christ. We are called to speak with humility as those before a holy God, as those uniquely called, loved, and led, as those a part of a body, and as those sent by Christ. Christ. Paul begins his appeal in Romans 12 with these words, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. Paul begins this this admonition with this bold phrase, not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. Now it feels like pretty early and pretty quickly, Paul is inviting us to begin measuring ourselves. Right? I remember when, when I would play sports as, as a child, and even now as we've got little ones playing sports, on picture day, what do they always do? Right? They line everybody up and they go, all right, from shortest to tallest. Right? And so all the kids kind of guess their place in line, and I always love to watch it because there's always at least one like of the shortest kid that like lines up at the end and they're looking around like, yeah, no, I'm good. I'm good. I'm one of the taller kids here. Right? And so everybody kind of jockeys around for position and you can tell at the end of it, the kids on the short end of the spectrum are just like dejected. Right? And the other kids just are standing proud and everybody's on their tippy toes because they want to be like just one more place up. But it feels like when Paul says not to think of yourself more highly than you ought to, the response is to Paul, okay, so how highly can I think of myself? Right? Like, am I like a 92? Am I like an A minus here? Right? Like, can I round up a little bit, Paul? Am I like a 92.9, therefore I'm a 93? But this isn't what Paul is calling us into. He's not calling us into what I would say or what we might call a horizontal comparison. Paul is not saying look to your left and your right and figure out based on those around you how highly you ought to think of yourself. The comparison is not horizontal. The comparison is vertical. 
Paul says that we are to look at our God and find our status and standing, our comparison, if you will, from Him. Listen, I always want to do this, and and this is going to sound like one of those no-duh type of statements, but in the Christian life, we are constantly calling each other to live like God is real. Or does that sound like, wow, did you guys just tweet that out? Did somebody like Instagram that almost immediately? It's the most profound thing I'm going to say. As Christ followers, we are called to live like God is real. To, to live like he's really right here and that he really has saved us. Now here's why I'm saying something that sounds like a Captain Obvious statement, because you and I don't. We don't, because if he's real, if he's right here, if he really has saved us, then the only relationship that would hold significant sway in our lives would be his. The only comparison we would make would be with him. The only status or standing that would really matter for our joy, for our security and value would be with him. Think of, think of a child for a second. We've got five kids, which is a lot. Now, here, here's what I don't really need my children to do. I don't need my children to look at their four other siblings and figure out, okay, I'm an older brother to this one. I'm a younger brother to this one. Here's where I fall in the order. You know what I need them to know? I need them to know they're a child and that they have a mother and father that love them. Likewise, church, we are called primarily not to figure out where we fall amongst our brothers and sisters, but to know that we are a child. So what is our standing before God? It's real simple, and it takes two parts. The first is this. He is holy. The word holy is one of those Christian words that we kind of throw out a lot, but at its basis it means other. He's different. He's beyond us. We are unable to get our arms fully around him. R.C. Sproul, a theologian, says perhaps the priority of all of Scripture in describing God is to say that he is holy. Right? When you see God in Scripture, when he appears to his people, he appears as a storm, a tempest, A tornado of fire and cloud, a raging fire. When he appears to his people, the earth trembles. Ed Welch, a counselor and pastor that I love, said recently in a sermon that he is the king that introduces himself with earthquakes. He's that big, he's that glorious, he is that holy. Think of the pictures we read in Scripture about God's holiness. When Moses asks to see God's glory, he's told that he can't, but that God would show him the shadow of his glory. And yet even in that, he has to be hidden in the cleft of a rock lest he see too much of God and perish. We're told later on in the stories of Samuel that there was a man named Uzzah, an Israelite, 
And he, when the Ark of the Covenant begins to tip and fall off of a cart, goes to steady it with his hand, and instantly as he touches it, he dies. So holy and glorious is God that just to touch a symbol of his presence is too much. Isaiah, in chapter 6, his famous vision, a dream of God. He does not actually see God, but sees a vision of God, and his response is, woe is me, I am undone. I'm unmade, as if he was a man of thread that had been simply pulled apart. Again and again and again, we are told that our God is holy, beyond us, righteous, perfect, Our standing is that He is holy, and second, we are not. Job, when he comes face to face with God, he says this beautiful little sentence. He says, I am a man of small account. I mean little in the face of God. I am little. The psalmist describes himself as poor, needy, frail, dust, a vapor or mist that vanishes. Jesus himself tells us that in the face of God, we are like little children, helpless and dependent. Humility begins with understanding our standing before God, that he is holy and great, and we are needy and dependent. And here, this church, it's really good news. See, humility is not despair in the face of God's glory and holiness and our neediness and dependence. Humility is being settled joyfully, contently, underneath of the holiness of God. To say to ourselves and others around us, I am needy and dependent, and that is not just okay, but good because my God loves and cares for me. He is big, we are small, but His love and dedication for small creatures like us is infinite. Church, humility begins in seeing God and ourselves rightly, and we must never cease to see our position before God. Like there is no interaction or situation or conversation that we have where this is not our primary status. Like when you discipline your children, do you discipline your children as one who is needy and dependent standing before a holy God? If that doesn't hit, how about this? When you argue with your spouse, Do you argue with your spouse as one who is needy, dependent, frail, and feeble, standing before a holy God? When you disagree with a coworker or a friend, or God help us, someone you don't really ever know, but are somehow friends on Facebook, do you disagree with them as someone who is needy, feeble, frail, dust, a mist, vanishing at dawn, standing before a glorious and holy God? When you've been wronged or hurt or harmed by another, do you respond as a child of a holy God? Our vertical status is always primary, always 
prominent. We don't speak or act towards someone else primarily on based on our comparison or status towards them. We don't size up our position compared to other people and then speak out of that place. We size up our position before God and from that place we speak. Humility is one. We speak as those before a holy God. And two, as those uniquely called, loved, and led. Paul goes on in verse 3, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. He continues his admonition to the church with this really odd and interesting statement. He says first that he wants them to think with a sober judgment, literally a sound mind. He wants them to see clearly the truth of the situation. But then he wants us to think clearly according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Now, if you, if you pull a commentary of Romans 12 and you have five different scholars, you may get five different thoughts of what this actually means. The, the word faith here, measure of faith, that word faith is pistis. Literally, it means belief or confidence. Almost every other place. Right? Here's what we know about what Paul is saying. One, he's not saying that God gives to us different degrees of saving faith. He doesn't mean that some people have more saving faith than others, that some are fully saved and others are partially saved, that some are there and others are on their way or clinging to a thread. He doesn't mean that. We know that from all the rest of Scripture. He might be saying that people have different or varying degrees of confidence in the Lord. That some of us seem to have a, a firm and bold confidence in Him, while others maybe have more of a feeble confidence. But what I think he's saying from the rest of chapter 12 and other places that Paul writes and uses this word is that people's experience of the Lord how they see the Lord, how they interact with Him, how they encounter them, Him, is different. Not the quantity of our faith, but the qualities of our faith. Now listen, I know some of you are going, whoa, 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 Michael, these feel like muddy waters. It feels like you're saying to me that, you know, people see God differently and I see God in a tree, and you see Him in water, right? It's not what I'm saying, and it's certainly not what Paul is saying. He's not saying that God is different to different people. He's not saying that God loves some people more than He loves others. He's not saying that some people will end up more holy than others. He's not saying that some people can have joy in God and others just can't get there. And he's not saying that God hasn't spoken clearly about matters of salvation and grace and holiness and love. If I need to describe what Paul is saying, let me borrow a quote from one of my favorite series, The Chronicles of Narnia. 
Aslan says again and again to the children that he interacts with this beautiful phrase. He says to them, children, I'm only telling you your story. And the implication here is that he is writing each of our stories differently. I have five children whom I love equally. And yet each of my five children are unique. And so because they are unique, I interact with them differently. I teach them things differently. There are different fears or doubts that they have that we lean into more strongly with different children that we have. In the same way, our God is writing a unique story for each of us. He reveals Himself to us differently. If I were to hold up a diamond right now, each of us would see the same diamond, but we would get differing views of the facets and beauty of that diamond. The Lord sanctifies us differently. Our story of how He frees us of sin, how He allows us to conquer areas, how He gives us reassurance and faith in the midst of hardship and suffering is different. So here's what that means, and here's how this applies to humility. One, Paul clearly says that God gives us faith, and He gives to us differing measures of faith. Our faith, our trust, our growth, our faithfulness does not come from us, but from Him. Which means we can't take credit for our growth. Nor, quite honestly, can we force anyone else around us to grow. We are called to walk with people, to point people towards our Savior. And yet it is He who brings life out of death. It is He who causes the branch to bring forth fruit. And it also means that God does so in different measures as He knows best. That we speak truth in love while having confidence that God will move as He wills. Listen, the, the truth is that the church is often a Christian version of just the rest of the world. We struggle and strive just like the world does. We compare ourselves against others just like the world does. We see ourselves as us and them just like the world does. We tend to minimize our faults while maximizing the faults of others just like the world does. We see our own gifts and our own abilities as more important than other people's just like the world does. But humility tells us that who we are, where the Lord is working, the faith that we have and the victories that we have achieved do not come from us, but come from Him who graciously loves us and is leading us home. So we don't expect other people to have our story and we don't need them to. And oh, by the way, speaking in humility also means 
that other people who have experienced the Lord either in difficulty or in joy, in good times or in bad times, who have seen victory or felt His grace in the midst of failure, have much that they can teach us as we interact with them. We speak in humility as those before a holy God and as those who are uniquely called, loved, and led. We also speak in humility as those who are a part of a body. Paul continues, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we Though many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Life apart from Christ, as I just said, is oftentimes defined by striving. It's defined by the pursuit of independence, autonomy, the desire for self-determination, and leading ourselves. Kids, let me just tell you something right now. This is parents just... Let me do this for two seconds. All of you are going to think at some point in time, I can't wait till I grow up and I can make my own decisions. I'm going to let you in on a secret. Your parents all the time think, I wish I was a kid and didn't have to make my own decisions. You're not going to believe me? That's all right, but mark this day down, write it in your sermon notes, put Pastor Michael next to it with mom and dad's approval. And look back on this one day when you have kids and go, sweet Lord, it would be wonderful to be a child again. Right? This is what life apart from Christ is. I want to be my own man, the captain of my own ship. I desire to determine for myself what is good and how to get it. But life in Christ is quite literally defined by the opposite. It's one defined by dependence. We were so dependent that Christ Jesus had to come from heaven to earth and be nailed upon a cross for us. It's one defined by living under His authority, not our own authority. It's one defined by intimate, constant, close relationship with other members of the body of Christ. Paul uses here a metaphor he uses again and again for the church, a body of believers. Right, this metaphor seems to convey two truths. One we just discussed. A body is made up of unique members, each having unique roles and being equipped differently as the Lord will use them differently. A body is made up, it's comprised of unique members. But also, the second truth of the metaphor of a body is that the body's members are all interdependent. I looked this up, and I've used this once before, it just always blows my mind. It takes hundreds of muscles for you to sit there. Like, without hundreds of muscles interacting right now, you would be a pool of jelly on the floor. And no one wants to listen to a sermon that way, and I don't want to preach to people on the floor. All right? Hundreds of muscles it takes for you to literally do nothing. Right? Most of you guys, except for in the bleachers who are stretching their backs because you're like, I don't have anything to lean on. 
right? Most of you guys here in the, in the, the expensive VIP section, sorry, you're like, I'm not doing anything right now, right? I am doing nothing. It takes 200 muscles for you to do nothing. That's how interdependent your body is on the various parts and pieces, right? Most of you, if you've been here for the last few weeks, have heard the story, the tragic story of my broken pinky. I won't recap it. You can go back and find out how foolish and desperately in need of Jesus your pastor is. But suffice it to say, I have found myself for the last several weeks without what I would have considered one of the least important parts of my body. Do you know that 70% of your grip strength comes from your pinky? I do. I couldn't carry groceries without them slipping out of my hand for a month and a half. Right? I had like my eight-year-old daughter shaming me as she picked up bags of groceries I could not carry. Our body is incredibly interdependent and so is the body of Christ. We all must work together for the flourishing of one another. So again, what does this have to do with humility? When I first began in ministry, I got this really terrible task, or at least it seemed like I was being given this task. The church was going through some changes and some, we'll just say, rough waters. Some people were upset and were leaving the church. And so I was tasked with being the guy that had the final conversation before they left. Right? And I was good at it. Like if you had a foot out the door and you met with Michael, you would end that meeting with two feet out the door. Right? But as I was having these meetings, which felt fruitless, which felt quite honestly like a waste of my time, our lead pastor came to me and said with wisdom, Michael, listen, even if these are difficult conversations, the men and women that you are meeting with have the spirit of Christ Jesus in the body. And so as you meet with them, even if all you can primarily hear is anger or frustration, I want you to listen close and ask the Lord to reveal to you what he would teach you from that person in that conversation. That simply because they belong to Christ and are a part of the body, the Lord can and would use them even if they were in a difficult place where they didn't really want to speak life. A pastor friend of mine who has a teenage son talked to me about how because he was now a believer, he was inviting his teenage son to speak truth into his life. If you've got a teenage child, most of you are thinking that feels really dangerous. And yet, if they are in Christ, a part of the body, then your flourishing is dependent upon them and their role in your life. And not just the negative role where you're like, no, I get it, Michael. They are there to sanctify me. They are there to cause me to grow in patience. Maybe, but maybe they're also there to speak into your marriage. Maybe they're also there to tell you where you're not believing the gospel. 
And let me tell you something, they won't mince words. Interdependence changes how we value others and thus how we interact and speak with them. It means humility to admit to others that we can't live life alone and we need others' wisdom and insight in our life. It means when you show up at gospel community and you don't really want to be there, that the other people there, even the ones that you find difficult to engage with, are there and can and will, by God's grace, be a part of your conforming, conforming into the image of Christ Jesus. Your hope and trust in the Lord. It means when we see each other as independent that when we speak to others, we spend as much time listening as we do talking. And let me tell you something, I am preaching to the only choir here that really matters. It means when you show up to a conversation that you are thinking far more about what they have to say to you than what you have to say to them. And finally, it means that when we speak to others, we do so gently because to wound them is to wound the entire body. We speak as those under a holy God, as those uniquely called, loved, and led. We speak as those a part of a body, and finally, as those sent by Christ. Paul concludes. He says, Having gifts that differ according to the grace God has given to us, let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service and serving, the one who teaches and teaches, teaching, the one who exhorts and exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Paul speaks about the gifts that have been given to us, the church, for the flourishing of the church. And he does so here, as he always does, reminding us that these gifts are to be used for the good of the entire church, and these gifts have been given to us by Christ for His glory and not ours. All that we are given, all of that measure of faith that has been assigned to us that we spoke about has been given to us. Our abilities, our wisdom, our experiences, even the sanctification we are going through has been given to us for the purposes that God has for us. Or another way to say it is for the mission that He has sent us on. To be a part of the equipping of the body and for the gospel going out. Which means we cannot claim our gifts, our abilities, our experiences, our wisdom as our own, nor can we use them as we see fit. They aren't for our glory, they're for His glory and for the good of those He loves and has come to save. Now we're going to dive into this more in another sermon as we learn to speak as Christ's ambassadors. But this also drives us into humility. Because the things that we believe make us distinct are not ours. They're His. Our gifts that we go, this makes me unique, have been given from God to us. They don't even belong to us. The goals, the plans and purposes that quote-unquote we have do not belong to us. 
They belong to Him. We are His sent on His behalf. When we speak, we speak on His behalf. When I was a a sophomore in college, I interned for a U.S. congressman in Missouri. And it was way less glorious than uh, if you think it sounds uh, interesting. It wasn't. Uh, I was tasked with responding to people's phone calls that had called and left messages. And as it turns out, like 90% of people called because they weren't receiving benefits and they were calling their congressman to find out where they were. I never knew where they were and had no power to find out where they were. So my job was to call them back and make them feel heard, even though we didn't really hear them. And so I would call these people back and try and kindly explain that the congressman was working tirelessly on their behalf to find out where their medal or their pension check or their benefits were. And every once in a while, my boss would come in and he would just sit there and listen as I spoke to these people. And he would remind me again and again, your tone is the congressman's tone. Your words are the congressman's words. And I thought to myself, why are you asking a college student to speak to people then? But nonetheless, I spoke on his behalf. Church, we speak on Christ's behalf as those sent on a mission, which means when we discipline our children, we do so as Christ's representative. When we argue with our spouse, we do so as Christ's representative. When we disagree with a co-worker or a friend or, Lord help us, some random person on Facebook, we do so as Christ's representative. Even when we're hurt, even when we've been harmed, we respond as Christ's representative. Church, we have been called to speak with humility. Humility as perfectly personified in Christ Jesus. The one who, in humility, came for us. The one who became humble for us. Philippians 2 says, Have this mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Now listen, listen to the path of your holy God, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself he poured himself out he lowered himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men being found in human form he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every other name. Christ lived out a life perfectly of humility because he understood his place before the Father. Because he knew what the Father was calling him into. Because he loved those around him he was sent to. And because he knew the glory that the Father had reserved for him. And church, because of Jesus, we too live out lives of humility because we know And trust our place before our Heavenly Father. Because we trust and know what He is calling us into. Because we love those around us He has sent us to. And because we know and understand the glory that we have awaiting for us in Christ 
Jesus. Our words are Christ's words, and he speaks humbly. And so we are called to speak likewise. Let me close us with a prayer from Francis Carbini, a prayer I love. Close your eyes and let me pray this over us. Lord Jesus Christ, I pray that you may fortify us with the grace of your Holy Spirit, that you would bring peace to our souls, and that we may be freed from all needless anxiety and worry. Help us to desire always that which is pleasing and acceptable to you, so that your will may be our will. Grant that we may be free from unholy desires and that for your love we might remain obscure and unknown in this world so that we may be known only to you. Do not permit us to attribute to ourselves the good that you perform in us and through us, but rather referring all honor to you. May we admit only to our infirmities and lacking, so that renouncing all of our own self-righteousness which comes from the world, we might aspire to that true and lasting glory that comes only from you, Jesus. Amen.